You're listening to Healing Voices Project, where we share stories and the latest information from people who fight addiction every day. I'm Mike Torville, your host and author of Voices from the Fallen. Thank you for listening, for following, and most of all, for sharing with people you care about. Make your voice count too. Hello, everybody. We're back here at Healing Voices Project. I'm Mike Torville, your host of the program at Healing Voices Project, and um, we're really glad to have you here listening or watching. Today, we have a guest, Kevin Rosario from Gosnold Behavioral Health. Kevin? Yes, sir. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Mike. Glad now, to be here. You're, um, right now, you serve, and you have worked at Gosnold for the last nine years. Correct. And right now, you are the Director of Community Outreach Reach for Gosnold Behavioral Health, and you have a bachelor's degree in business administration. Yes, sir. And you're going to school now, working on your MBA. I am, I'm Correct. almost done. That's great. And uh, you are a nationally certified intervention professional and recovery coach as well. Yes, right? sir. Well, that's great. I mean, I'm sure you've got your hands full with a lot. Yeah. And um, I, we're gonna talk about Gosnell and what happens there, but we really wanna talk about you today, right? Your story, what led you to where you are. Yeah. Um, I know you've said you're a person in recovery for 13 years. Correct. Um, and now you've been at Gosnell for nine years. Yep. So let's go back in time a little bit. Okay. And visit the earlier Kevin. Sure. <laughs> that guy's a problem. I don't right. know if you want to <laughs> oh. meet that guy. <laughs> he's not going to reappear here. No, 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 no. Um, He's dead. <laughs> so, uh, but Kevin, yeah, thanks again for coming yeah, and sharing pleasure. your willingness to, to share your story a little about about what you're doing now. Yeah. And uh, so let, let's go back to, you know, first, you know, you are where you are now as a result of a, of a long and probably often painful journey. Mm. Um, let, let's go back. Where, where did things start for you? Yeah, sure. Happy to. And yeah. uh, thanks again for, for the invite. Uh, sure. I feel grateful to be in a professional position where it's okay to talk about this publicly. You know, unfortunately, there's a lot of stigma around addiction and mental health. And so people don't get help sometimes because they're afraid of consequences, right? That prevents people from getting help. And then even people getting well don't want people to know they haven't had a problem so they don't talk about being well or being in recovery and uh and that's fine everyone has the right to their own privacy uh i, re- I totally respect people that now, don't do you want think to. not to interrupt do you think yeah. that's changing though uh, oh definitely over yeah. the last yeah. you know five years or more i mean it's definitely there's a lot of energy there's people like yourself that care and dedicate and try to put it out there but still the stigma remains like yeah. if you're you know middle-aged person that put their kids through college that has a house and a professional job but you've silently had some drinking problem whether you correct it or not you don't want to tell people about it you know you're afraid of the impact in the community and your career and 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 i get it you know i i get it and so people like yourself and and organizations like ours we want to talk about it we want to shed light on it we want to reduce the stigma we want to share really more about the stories of recovery of hope that people do get well and then we also share on the science of addiction like how did this happen right so that that's the question like well how did you get here what happened and and it doesn't have to be so complex but you can see in two minutes i'm pretty hyped right 
I had a half a cup of coffee at like 5.30 this morning, and if you see me at 6 p.m. tonight, this is where I live. I'm 44 <laughs> years old. Can you imagine me at 10, right? Right. <laughs> so there's the premise of this. The, there's the backdrop. Hyperactive kid, yeah. buzzing around in my own skin. And then, you know, some of the other common things, like two great parents. They're still married. They're still together. Uh, but my father was a Portuguese immigrant, moved to New Bedford when he was like 17. There was a civil war in Portugal and started doing like offshore fishing. So wasn't around in the earlier years of my life so I never learned Portuguese as a kid because my mother is uh, English and Portuguese but like third generation Portuguese is not our primary language uh, and I only say that to say it's another thing that people don't want to talk about like the old school like they say what do they say uh, Irish Catholic curtains or whatever it is it's like whatever happens in the home stays in the home right, right. you don't talk about it but yeah. a reality is you know, my father was doing the best he could as an immigrant. The money was inconsistent. Then he got into painting. Painting is, you know, seasonal. And mom had the city job and held it down. And there was often conflict in the house about finances and other things. And and I remember as a kid, they're fighting and they're yelling. And, and it was like, and I have a brother that's three years younger than me. That's a citizen and a great human. You know, shout out to Nick. But um, that's a part of it. So I'm hyperactive. I got this family dynamic, and then I don't know how it happens, but I developed a lot of insecurity and self-esteem issues. As, an, as a young teenager? Elementary school. Yeah, that early, yeah, okay. Elementary school, you know, I grew up in New Bedford, very diverse uh, community, but the best elementary school at the time, and you know, just to date myself with these young whippersnappers out there, my elementary school, Carney Academy, was the first elementary school to have a computer program back in the 80s. And I feel so old talking like this, but mm -hmm. it's true. My mother literally picked a school that was outside of my district because it was the best school. So now I had to get a waiver and become a magnet student, which means I take a bus from a different district to a school that I don't belong to which also is situated right across the street from housing projects, right? So now I'm like this white kid in a two-parent home that they own a two-family house, and all of my friends are all in the projects. And they have stories. You know, some of them are great and well-adjusted and had beautiful families. Just living in the projects doesn't inherently make you bad. But generally speaking, you know, being raised by grandma, right? Dad may have a drug problem. Dad may not even be in the picture. Maybe mom's only in the picture, and she has a drug problem. And I say that to say, like, I have my own insecurities and my own family dynamic and stuff at home that, like, I'm a little uncomfortable with. And then the people I'm around, often it was much worse. So I can't go to school and complain about, wow, wow, my parents are fighting. They're like, I don't even have parents. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Right. And so I kind of ate that and kept it to myself, which creates this anxiety. And then... I'm like the white kid in a mostly African-American Spanish school, so I'm different. I'm from outside the district, and I just, at a young age, fifth grade, didn't feel like I fit in, you know? And, and, and to me, I think that's more important to talk about than, oh, yeah, I shot heroin for nine years. All right, great, but I did shoot heroin for nine years, and I'm lucky to be alive. I had a couple overdoses. I got three DUIs. I've been incarcerated, you know, as a result of my lifestyle. I've, I've had a rough road, but the truth is, and the nature of addiction that some people don't understand is, we need to figure out what was driving it in the first place. Because the truth is, when I got sober at 31 for the ninth time, at 31 years old, I'm like a 10-year-old kid with low self-esteem, with insecurity issues, that don't feel safe, that has some trauma from things that have happened. And like, if you don't address that, then you'll never get well or stay well. Drugs are not the problem. Drugs and alcohol are not the problem. Drugs and alcohol are a temporary solution. Mm -hmm. They're medicine. They are used therapeutically for people like me. And, uh, you know, just to fast forward through that, I would kind of sell out and just be 
whoever I needed to be to be accepted by the cool kids, right? I picked a crowd. I went with the hip-hop crowd. Like, those are my people. Not the skaters, not the rock and rollers, not the, like, the gothic people. Like, I was all in into hip-hop, and I wore all the outfits. And, like, people my age will laugh when they hear this because it was, like, the Jenko jeans and the cross colors and, like, uh, wearing Oshkosh Gosh, like, G farmer jeans on with one strap, wearing them backwards, like, all this weird stuff that, <laughs> like, I make fun of these kids now with their skinny jeans and they're wearing purses and everything. But Do you got pictures just, of yourself back then? Oh, I do. Oh, right. I do. And I got the <laughs> ponytail with the one earring. Yeah. And, uh... You know, when I'm judgy, I can be judgy of all these young kids now, the way they dress. But the truth is, if they were wearing skinny jeans in 85, I probably would have wore skinny jeans just right. to be down with whoever yeah, else was there, right? Yeah. So I have to remember that. Um, fifth grade, got bullied like once. Scared the crap out of me, never forget it. Sixth grade, fell in love with this young lady. Kissed another boy in front of me, broke my heart, uh -huh. right? That's and a killer. <laughs> yeah, between the 12 steps, which absolutely saved my life and ongoing therapy and meditation and just trying to become more aware of what makes me tick, like those two, the family dynamic, the being in a different school, the getting bullied, and then the first little puppy love that went south, those things were the catalyst for my addiction. And when I left elementary school and went to seventh grade, which was Keith Junior High and new school, uh, and therapists, people use the, the term, I made an inner vow. My inner vow was at an early age, I'll never be like my parents who stay together in the like, you know, Portuguese divorce, sleep in separate bedrooms, hate each other, but don't leave. I'll never be that. I'll never be bullied again. And I'll never let a girl break my heart. And so when I go to seventh grade. How did that all work out? Awful. I did all of those things. Right? <laughs> yeah, all of yeah. those things all came right, yeah. full circle in my yeah. life, uh, by the way. Yeah. Uh, we don't have enough time for all of that. Um, but I, I, I do think that this, this part of it is more important and people can identify with this because... This is the thing. This is the thing that whenever someone tries to stop using whatever they're using, they're not okay. Why? Why are they not okay? It's because there's some unsettled business, you know? And what ended up happening in seventh grade, now I'm the class clown, now I'm making fun of other people, now I'm uh, being rowdy and disruptive, now I'm making fun of other kids to take the attention off me because I don't want to be made fun of, right? And then I smoked a joint. Like the joint's not the problem. The joint is secondary to all this other stuff, yeah. right? And and my story is I was hanging around with older kids at a younger age to make me feel safe, right? In seventh grade, I'm hanging around with eighth graders. Eighth graders, I'm hanging around with high school kids because of that little bully fear. I never want to be bullied again. Mm -hmm. So you got to be loud. you got to be tough. you got to be aggressive. you got to yeah, hang in defensive mode. All just, the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And by the end of seventh grade, I found myself selling joints for the older kids, right? And it was like sell five joints, get one free. Yeah. And then in eighth grade, I tried mescaline for the first time. And by the end of eighth grade, I was selling mescaline. And it wasn't like king pick drug dealer stuff. It's like, I'm 13 and I don't have any income. If I sell these things, I can consume them for free. Mm -hmm. And I can just fast forward all through high school because that's my story. It just progressed. It got worse in high school. I'm copping pounds of weed. I'm committing crime. But at the same time, I went to drive his ed. I was the first one of my friends to have a license, first one to have a car, always had a job, worked at Friendly's and Stop and Shop, but I always had that party life. Uh, and as a result of those life choices, I'm not a victim of these things, but I've been arrested over 12 times. You know, gun charges, cocaine charges, marijuana charges, breaking and entering, gun charges. Like, I just was making bad decisions hanging around with some rowdy people. And, I, and, and my poor mother would say like, oh, you know, you got to watch out who, who you hang out with. I was the one getting arrested, not my friends. I was like way off the rails. Like I was the problem, not them. 
um, environment always plays a factor. There's a scene that just reminded me, I know the loft of thing, but remember Breaking Bad? Yeah. That show, and uh, the wife was asking the husband, you know, there's people and there's there's a lot of danger out there. And his response was, I am the danger. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly. almost like you're reminding me, like, you're the one that yeah. had more than most of the people that you were hanging around with. Yeah. So you were the concern that other parents had with their kids. Exactly. <laughs> Why are you hanging around with Kevin? <laughs> but every parent yeah. can't see that, right? My right. mother's a sweetheart, right. leave yeah. it to Beaver, grew up in a cushion it, yeah. Lifetime Movie Network for days, right? Yeah. Glasses halfway full, can't be me. Right. Right. Uh, but the reality was it, it, it was me, you know, and, uh, you know, so we can fast forward all the way through high school, drinking, partying, getting arrested for being a wild kid. And then um, I got in a car accident at like 18 years old and played the game. Oh, my neck and my back to get a lawsuit. Right. Because I'm a hustler and I'm hanging. Did you around cause here. the accident? No, we, we oh. it was in the snow. We were stopped at a red light. Someone banged us. Okay. We banged into another car. A teenager we're like, oh, yeah, neck and back. Mm hmm. Go to the lawyer, go to the chiropractor, get prescribed Vicoprofen, which is Vicodin and Ibuprofen, and Flexerol, which is a muscle relaxer, and proceeded to continue to drink and smoke weed while on them and loved that combo. That was the worst thing that ever happened to me because the combination of the opiate and the muscle relaxer and the alcohol and the weed, which I was already had been doing pretty consistently, it was like I could finally breathe. Like I could finally like relax my shoulders a little bit because you're always tense before. always tense yeah. even now like i have to catch myself when i get talking i'm like where the difference is in recovery i've learned how to de-escalate okay yeah like now i can breathe yeah. i can pause mm -hmm. i can bring my own heart rate down now like i can even identify kevin you're being manic change the tone the speed the volume of your voice these are all regulations whereas skills. before it was another mechanism obviously. tasmanian yeah. devil crashing yeah. into walls yeah and it was drugs that were the only thing that took the edge yeah. off yeah um so, of course, I start selling Percocets, and uh, I'm using Percocets, and I never got sick. And then OxyContin came out, and everyone said, it's like Percocets without the aspirin. I said, great, I didn't need the aspirin, right? Mm -hmm. It makes sense. Yeah. So you got these OC20s, they're this big, and they're the power of four Percocets, which are three times the size. So I start taking OC20s and then OC40s. So what do I do? I immediately start selling them. I'm always a guy that, I'm not wasting money on drugs. I have a job to pay my bills, and I hustle for my fun, my recreation, the club money, the, you know, things like that. And within, I don't know, months, less than a year, um, I was fully blown addicted to it and I didn't even know it happened because I wasn't hanging around with drug addicts. We were drug dealers, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. We, we weren't dependent. And I went camping and when you go camping, I'm not saying that this is how you go camping, but at, you know, 20 years old, the necessities are hot dogs, hamburgers, a couple 30 packs, an ounce of weed, blunts to roll the weed, and that's it, you know. Didn't bring pills because in my mind, I don't need pills. It was a secondary thing. I was a weed smoker, a but drinker. By then, you had been taking the pills right along, and, and now no you were going to go some time without them. Exactly. And how did that go? I experienced my first withdrawal, yeah. which also changes everything. Like, I think I had one pill, so by Saturday, 90 degrees in July or whatever, hot, cold sweats, bubble guts. Man, I feel like flu-like symptoms. Mm -hmm. And my buddy who's hip, he says, Kev, you're dope sick. Mm -hmm. I could have punched him in the face. You know what I'm saying? I'm Kevin Rosario. I make money. I sell drugs. I'm not dope sick, right? These pills were not ever classified in that same way in 1999. And he's like, I'm telling you. And he busts one out, and I sniff a line, and in 20 minutes, I'm right as rain. And I feel like, I don't know if it's trauma. I'm not a neurosurgeon. I'm not a therapist. Like, all I know is, like, 
some part of the brain, the hippocampus, like this goes into like fight or flight survival mode. Like once your brain says, if you don't have this, you're going to be sick. It creates anxiety that goes and escalates and says, if you don't have this, you're going to die. And from that day forward, I never not had it. It was always making sure I have enough. And then as your habit progresses, you go from $20 a day to $50 a day to $200 a day. Then all of a sudden, like you can't have it enough. And you're constantly being high and going through withdrawal, high and going through withdrawal. Because you build up a tolerance, is that right? Exactly. Yeah, and then you need more and more and more. And And what ends up happening is your life becomes consumed with, how do I get more money to get more? How do I get more money to get more? Uh, Within a year, I found myself sniffing heroin. Within a few months after that, I found myself shooting heroin. And I went from the cool kid with the Cadillacs and the pinky rings and the drug dealing and the keg potties to like full-blown heroin addiction within a year of trying Oxycontin. Uh, were, you, and then, were you living at home then? I was. Your I was. parents? My how, parents, How yeah. aware were they of what was happening? Um, so they weren't aware at all. Um, they had a two-family home. I rented the second-floor apartment since I was like 17 because I always had a job and a hustle. And one year, like, uh, tenants moved out, and they're like, well, we'll see if we can sustain the mortgage. We'll let you guys stay there. And then I'm like, well, I'll help with that, you know, and I would pay rent. Yeah. So I kind of had my own place at a young age, which also didn't help the lifestyle. It was, like, really good. And and my parents were, like, just not aware that this was happening. Because you physically couldn't even tell until it got to heroin. So I got years of drinking and partying and pills and, and uh, unhealthy, unsafe behavior before it got to heroin. And then within a few months of heroin, it's uh, it gets ugly fast. And then comes methadone clinics. I was on methadone for a year and then got kicked off because I got in a fist fight in the methadone clinic and then I got back on the other methadone clinic. And then uh, finally in 2004, I got my second DUI and ammunition charge. I got caught drunk driving. I had a box of bullets in the car and uh, I got arrested for the first time at 16 and I got arrested every single year, at least once a year for the next eight years straight. And at 24, I would get continued without a findings. They're called quaffs, right? I would plea out and get probation. And at 24, on 90 milligrams of methadone, still actively using drugs, I got that charge and my lawyer was like, you're going to jail. There's no more negotiating. It's just a matter of we're going to negotiate the length. You hit the limit. They were done. Fancy lawyer. um, He saved me a lot of jail time for sure. But when it came down, it was like done. And and this, I got to like fast forward because be mindful of your time. But this was also an important turning point for me because it's 2004. I'm going to jail. I'm not going to jail on methadone. So I play the game. I come down on the clinic, get down to like 15 milligrams. I go to detox, CSS, halfway house. I'm in a program getting slip signed, playing the game because now I'm playing the I'm a drug addict card. Please help me. And to be honest with you, it worked. That's why when I see people in treatment or in the, in the 12 step halls, I'm like, I don't care why you're here. Just try to listen. Because what happened in 2004 was instead of going to jail for two years, I pled out to six months. Got out of jail, started selling cars, rap probation, started selling weed again, did well for a while. You were selling weed, but you weren't using. I was using it also. Okay. Okay. I was using, as soon as I rap probation, I started smoking the weed again mm-hmm. and I was selling it and all went well for a while. And then no program, no recovery, no higher power, no therapy, no nothing, just don't use so you don't go back to jail was like the only guiding force. Next thing you know, I got a Cadillac, I got the jewelry, I'm making $1,000 a week, I'm renting cars, I'm renting houses in Newport. On paper, I'm killing it at life, my parents are proud of me, but I'm still not okay. I still don't feel equal to, I feel like something's missing, right? And we learn in recovery, there's a spiritual void. 
is an emotional problem. There's something in me that is always looking for this perfect scenario and looking for these things to make me feel good. And they work for a little bit, but they don't eventually in the long run. And I got all this stuff. I'm killing it at life. Everybody's proud of me. And my brain says, look how good you're doing. Look how far you've come. You were a heroin addict. You were a methadone. You went to jail. You beat probation for the first time in eight years because I never finished probation in that, the eight years prior. Maybe you can have a couple beers. You know, stay away from the Coke and the pills and the heroin. It's your reward. With these professional yeah. salespeople. These are citizens. Yeah. Not in the projects now, you know? Right. And uh, the worst thing happened that can happen to someone like me is that I went out and I drank and had a blast. I didn't black out. I didn't throw up. I didn't get in a fight. And what that did was set off this mental obsession. I couldn't wait for next weekend to go back out again. And then after a couple months, I couldn't wait. And now I'm drinking on Wednesday and Saturday. And after a couple months, I'm drinking a few days a week. And then next thing you know, I draw another line in the sand. Well, as long as I don't do opiates, well, it's just perks. Well, as long as I don't sniff it, now I'm sniffing Oxycontin. Well, as long as you don't go to heroin, shooting heroin. And it took a full year from my first drink before I put a needle back in my arm. But I still put a needle back in my arm. After everything I'd been through, I threw it all away. And then it's a clearance sale, right? Everything must go. The car's gone, the jewelry's gone, the job's gone. I'm living at mom's house, I'm collecting unemployment, I'm shoplifting for the drug dealer, I'm overdrafting my accounts. It gets to the point where that's not even enough. I'm stealing jewelry from my family, pawning it, and all the chaos that comes with that. Until finally, July 2nd, 2010, I'm just broken. And people always say, well, what was the thing? It wasn't a thing. Like, my best friend died May 2nd, 2010, Nick Winchenbeck. That was a huge thing. But it was... It was I was so morally broken and disgusted with myself. Like they say, well, triggers and relapse prevention. A trigger was as soon as I woke up in the morning and relapse prevention was like, get as much booze and opiates and benzos to sleep as much of the day as possible. Because if I'm sleeping, I'm not causing harm. And then the lucid moments in between are like, I don't want to do this anymore. I wish I wouldn't wake up, but I don't have the courage to kill myself. You know, and why 2004 was important, even though I didn't really want to be in recovery, was I went to a meeting every day for like 10 months. I was in a program for like 10 months. And so in 2010, when I was really broken and really ready to do anything, I remembered what those 12-step people said. They said, if you want any chance of staying in recovery, you got to pray in the morning and pray at night. Try not to use for one day. Go to a meeting, get a sponsor, work the steps. And so day one in detox, I prayed to my best friend that died. That was the best I can do. I hated religion and church and God, and I was so sick. Um, but I could pray to my best friend, and that got me through a few months. And then mm -hmm. I, I got to a halfway house, and I got a sponsor, and I did the steps, and I had a therapist. And for the first three months, I was on non-narcotic psych meds because I was not okay. You know, they had to put me on antidepressants and sleep meds and anxiety meds. And uh, I'm grateful because it helped me slow down a little bit to get to the next step to get to the next step and then uh you know when i went through the 12 steps something just amazing happened like uh one i completely lost the obsession to drink and use it was just gone and it has been gone um and my spirit was just like renewed i had this reality check that i'm not a gangster i'm not a playboy i'm not a tough guy i'm not a new bedford rah-rah i was a broken little boy do you attribute that to any particular thing or did it just happen in the process it's the process. Yeah, okay. So the process is like pray in the morning, pray at night, go to meetings, be of service in the 12-step community. But also you write out like your whole life. You write down everyone that's ever pissed you off, every fear you've ever had, every piece of questionable sex conduct. And there's a series of like 20 questions that you put to that. And it's like it's intellectual, but it's spiritual and it's emotional because you're asking God to help you see the truth. 
And like I went from being rah rah, I'm a tough guy, I'm a victim, my parents suck, New Bedford sucks, the cops sucks, went to like, oh, I made all, I put myself in all these places. And like once you can accept that, oh, I sold drugs, that's why I got arrested. Oh, I committed crimes, that's why I kept, and, and when I, I really looked at the truth of the matter, like I'm the problem, New Bedford's not the problem. I made decisions based on self that put me in every hairy situation I was ever in. Other people played their part and other people did bad things. I've literally been stabbed in the back. I've been shot at. I've been jumped. I'm in, but if I'm not living the life I'm living, I'm not in a position that, for that to happen. And it was like, it was like my, my, all my anger was lifted. Uh, and I went out in the world and started looking at people in the eye and not saying sorry, but saying like, I know I've harmed you. And is there anything I can do in, in owning what I did? And, and my life forever changed, you know, and that since then by the way and i think this is important 13 years later i still pray every morning and pray every night i still go to a couple meetings a week i just went through the 12 steps again because life happens and you get resentful and you get fearful and the symptoms of the disease of addiction come back the symptoms are not always drinking and drugging anger fear resentment insecurity self-pity gambling sex buying too much stuff on amazon golfing three times a week instead of once a week right <laughs> my disease can manifest in all these other areas to try to make me feel good when i don't feel good and the truth is i just need that connection with that higher power i need to go back to god and i need to take away the poison that's been blocking me you know so 13 years later like i'm still doing the do and I've been super blessed. Like life hasn't always been easy, uh, but as a result of recovery, um, I've repaired my credit. I got excellent credit when I came in. I was like a 480 credit score and owed thousands of dollars. Now I'm a 750, right? I uh, went back to school, chipped away at an associate's degree, then a bachelor's degree. It took me 10 years because I went part-time, have a full-time intense job, still You're active in recovery. Again. I'm still, still now I'm in an accelerated program at Fitchburg State, which is like seven-week classes, no breaks, back to back to back to back. And God willing, you know, in May, I'm going to have a, a master's degree, an MBA with a focus in healthcare. Got two beautiful kids, a three-year-old and a two-year-old. Well, they're three and a half and two and a half. And the reality is, is like me and their mom didn't work out. And that's been tough on all parties. Um, and that's why I went through the steps again. Um, but with the help of my higher power and my recovery network, people that helped me get through these tough things, I still haven't thought about drinking. I haven't thought about getting high. And I generally have a good attitude. And I'm grateful. She's a good mom. She's a mom in recovery. I got two beautiful, healthy kids. They don't have disabilities. Like, they, I am so blessed. I don't have all the fancy stuff I used to have or that I would like to have, but I have more than what I need. You don't want that Cadillac back? I mean, I would. I wouldn't <laughs> mind the Cadillac back, you know what I mean? But yeah. if you give me the Cadillac and a broken spirit or the Altima, Altima I'm driving now and a full spirit, I'll take the Altima. And, and recovery day. doesn't come with uh, everything turning suddenly perfect. No. Uh, is your point, right? Yeah. And, yeah. But and I had yeah, a good run. Yeah, I probably yeah. had a good like eight or nine years that were pretty good. Yeah. Um, mostly blessings and like got in a relationship, got pregnant back to back in the middle of COVID. I wasn't taking care of my program and my spirit and things got crazy. And like couple, we do the couples counseling thing. And I share that because it's easy to come and spit fire and act like I pee rainbows and butterflies all days. The truth is people have died. Tough things have happened, but I didn't drink or use anyway as a result of recovery. Yeah. Not because I'm lucky, not because I'm strong, because I, I gain access to the power. You, know, you found me. different ways to, to, to not only cope, to deal with and overcome yeah. those things. Yeah. yeah. I'm More truly, but I, and I, I love my job. I've been working yeah. in the field of addiction for tw almost 12 years now. Um, 
I started like a side gig working with kids because my passion is adolescence. So I started like a speaking and consulting thing where I'll go into a high school with 650 kids in an auditorium mm -hmm. and not just share my story, but share science and talk about the developing brain and the limbic system and how d dopamine plays into that and helping them understand like their genetic predisposition if they have that, that puts them at an increased risk, right? Adverse childhood experiences, the more traumas and experiences that you've had that create pain on your spirit puts you at an increased risk to become addicted if you experiment and make it more educational informative and, and I just love doing that I'd love to share that and maybe in a future show yeah. and because um, I think we could spend easily a half hour talking about that topic and yeah. and talk about what you talk about with these with these students yeah. that would be great um, and now obviously you said you got into the um, counseling at 12 years ago or so a year or so into your recovery right yeah uh, no two years so two years into it I I yeah so it's probably 11 and a half in the industry okay yeah I was two years into recovery and I started working for High Point Treatment Center in Brockton and I was doing community support pro provider I was picking people up bringing them to appointments I did that for two years then I came to Gosnold and they got me certified as a recovery coach an interventionist and a family coach which every two years I get the credentials and I continue to do that but I've never really been a counselor and I haven't been working in direct patient care for about eight years after about a year and a half at Gosnold I started doing community talking and I started you know reaching out and letting other people know like one recovery is possible what resources are available and then after another year there was an opportunity to get really more into the marketing business development side and now that's where I've been for the better part of seven years I report directly to the CEO uh, I'm not a senior leader but I work very closely with the senior leaders and it's like how do we get the word out there about Gosnold how do we promote services how do we expand services how do we improve patient care how do we reduce AMA and, and lack of engagement how do we pe keep people so we can do the work that we do and uh, I just love it you know I love it and I, I started going to school you know 10 years ago thinking I'm a sales guy I'm gonna go to big business I'm gonna make 300 grand a year because if I don't shoot heroin I'm pretty successful right <laughs> this is the brain and the ego by the way um, and the next thing you know I'm working in behavioral health for 12 bucks an hour and I'm like oh my god this is where I need to be and my spirit got lit on fire and so I'm like okay how can I use my sales and my business brain in this space mm -hmm. and so now the goal is like how do I become COO CEO of a Gosnell type place executive director how do I implement change and policy and programming how can I make an impact so now that's why I chose healthcare as the focus in the MBA so instead of going back to corporate world I want to have an impact here and use my skills and my passion to you know have an impact and make change skills passion and energy Energy. <laughs> I got that. Um, and right now your job is Director of Community Outreach Correct. At, at Gosnold. And just a shout out to Gosnold. What's their website and phone number? Yep, Gosnold is gosnold.org. Pretty simple, www.gosnold.org. People often spell it with an A, so I will say it's G-O-S-N-O-L-D.org. And the 800 number is 1-800-444-1554. Uh, and you can feel free to call that number. You can call me. You can email me. My email is krosario at gosnold.org. My cell is... 774 scratch that that's my personal 508-274-4477 i do carry two phones um but i'm always available and accessible and and yeah. if i'm not the guy i'll point you in the right direction well, guys, now i tell you it's like lucky to have you and you've got quite an experience yeah thank you, you. And appreciate you coming thank you mike thank appreciate you very much all right yes sir yep and um, thanks everybody for listening and tune in again because we're going to also share a lot of what kevin's doing at gosnold in an upcoming um, episode so thanks again everybody for listening thanks again kevin for coming thank down my pleasure all right yeah